Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. And today, for our very last episode of 2016, we're going to talk about wish lists. So we were thinking something along the lines of Christmas and, you know, what, what's nice about Christmas and, you know, if we're being uh, honest, it's presents. And, uh, you know, we were thinking about what we want for Christmas and what we want to see next year. So we thought, wouldn't it be fun to have some editors, some agents, book reviewers talk to us about what it is that they'd like to see in the coming year in um, genre books? So we've got some excerpts from loads of people in the industry, and we're going to just have a discussion about, you know, what they're looking for and what we think about that, and then give us a little insight into what the three of us would like to see more of next year. Well, um, I will kick off with um, Anne Perry, who is an editor at Hodder, uh, and she was kind enough to say uh, say this. She says, uh, I, I've loved all the fantasy that's inspired by or based on fairy tales that I've been seeing in the last few years, but I feel like the traditional stories are a bit played out now. I'd like to see books that take their inspiration from more contemporary stories that have the same sort of cultural cash that the older fairy tales do. Say, for example, a book that borrows tropes from 80s teen movies and applies them to epic fantasy. Which my first thought was, hell yes! (laughs) I'd love a book like that. Absolutely, especially after Stranger Things. I mean, I think the audience is definitely there for that. And Black Mirror was also uh, 80s themed for uh, the third season. And I mean, it's a fantastic idea because if you um, look at some of the bestseller lists, obviously there's Naomi Novik's Uprooted, which is there as well. And I know that doesn't have 80s teen movies, but it's the idea that you can still have a really good fairy story but and make it sound traditional, but not actually be a traditional story. And of course, Neil Gaiman is the the king of that as well, of creating modern things, but with sort of an old world feel and old world morals to it. Um, But I'm not quite sure what 80s teen tropes I'd like to see. Uh, Maybe the Lost Boys meet Cinderella. That would be be interesting. Yeah, or a kind of... um breakfast club with uh, fairy tale characters they're all i was just <laughs> about to say that <laughs> that would be great though wouldn't it you've got like them kind of you know the lo- locked room drama with a bunch of uh, petulant uh <laughs> fairy tale characters i think that'd be great do you know what i really want to write that no there you are it's your next project after you finish your trilogy Oh, my God. And, and you should send it to Hodder, apparently. And I've then... got an editor lined up already. <laughs> there you are. Perfect. <laughs> I know. I think that's a really original idea for to, to blend those two very distinct genres. And I think that would be, yeah, I can imagine. So it would produce some really unusual results. I, I would love to think that maybe the middle of 2017, Anne Perry just gets a dump of these really <laughs> peculiar, very inventive stories on her desk and goes, what on earth are they doing? And she's like, oh, I remember what I said now. That would be very cool. It's like Prince Charming, the basket case. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, we got something similar from Penny Reeve at Angry Robot as well. Uh, Penny said, as our slogan says, we're looking for the best in SF, F, and WTF being science fiction, fantasy, and what the fuck, if I can say that on on here. Yeah. If, if we're <laughs> Penny goes on, if we're obvious in any way, it's that we don't follow trends and are always looking for something fresh, new, diverse, and progressive. So, I mean, obviously that's a a great thing. It's not as specific as Anne Perry's, obviously, but you know, it's obviously clear that everybody this year is looking for something new and interesting and not sort of a rehash of what there's been popular in 2016. Yeah, and I mean, actually, this year, um, An Accident of Stars by Foz Meadows was kind of one that really um, stuck out for me as really interesting. And it was different and sort of played with the genre tropes um, of portal fantasy. And it it had sort of uh, LGBT characters. It had it. It just explored different things that you're not used to seeing in a fantasy that was really trying to emulate some of those traditional fantasy tropes. And I feel like that was um, a really good risk that they took in, in sort of doing something different. And I'd definitely like to see more of that from them next year. So we've also got um, an excerpt from Bella Pagan from Tor. And she says that she'd really love to see some more mainstream fiction, slightly subverted, as it were, by a fabulous speculative fiction twist. 
This might include a, just a dash of fantastic or science fiction or be more full throttle in its genre credentials. And we all have friends that say they just don't read science fiction or fantasy, that, you know, they just don't like it. But she thinks that genre aficionados suspect that that just can't be true. Yep, yep, you're absolutely right, Bella. It's true, it can't be true. (laughs) Um, We just have to find them the right book. It would be wonderful to show those who don't usually read in this area that speculative fiction can be immersive, fun, intelligent and exciting and is very definitely for them too. Amen. (laughs) Absolutely. And hopefully Bella's on to something like this. For example, we've got a lot of uh, Netflix uh, series that are going on at the minute and sort of general American series that are doing really well with these kind of descriptions. And you kind of hope that people will go, well, I, you know, I really enjoy Game of Thrones. I might try a little bit of fantasy. Maybe not something really, really deep, but, you know, a little bit of a fantasy. And hopefully Bella's right that there'll be a market for it in 2017 that perhaps there hasn't been in previous years. I mean, that'd be fantastic to see. Do you think Lucifer falls into this category? <laughs> I've just been watching it recently and I was like, this is just basically a crime drama with some supernatural elements thrown in. Having that kind of semi-mainstream story with um, a speculative fiction twist uh, has been popular in the past. So if you look at things like um, The Time Traveller's Wife, that could be said to be within that sort of uh, remake. Yeah, definitely. Or um, The Shining Girls by Lauren Bukas. So... Um, you've got, you know, kind of a serial killer type tale with time travel powers. So <laughs> I and I definitely think there's more scope for that because it, it's fun and interesting. And, and you've got that kind of twist on a genre that could be like the entry point, you know, hey, you really love crime drama? Well, why don't you try this? Because it's crime drama plus a little bit of excitement. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's definitely the way to go to get, you know, to, to tempt in people who would turn their noses up uh, at so-called genre with a capital G. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's a really good, um, you know, I've got ideas myself, but it's, it's a really good plan to kind of, I mean, I have heard it said that, you know, that there's the hardcore kind of fantasy and science fiction doesn't have, you know, its audience isn't as strong today as it has been. Um, and maybe that's a, a way to kind of address that, to, to reach out to new readers and to try to kind of build a, a bigger fan base is to, to you know, look at um, genre kind of blurring um, stories. Well, the thing about horror is that there are so many other stories that can involve a little bit of horror. I mean, you're talking a minute ago about Lucifer. And, you know, at the end of the day, you can have a story about demons and angels, which can be a crime drama. It could be a bit of fantasy. It could be, you know, a a person. It could be a chick flick. It could be anything. But you you can usually slip a little bit of horror in there without people noticing. And historical is another really good one. So you've got um, all the Dan Simmons stuff, particularly the terror, which is uh, my particular favorite or um, Drood, and then you've got Sarah Pimbra's Murder and Mayhem, which are all on the face of it, mostly historical stuff with some really good historical facts and basis, but with some horror slipped in so that you almost don't notice. And it's, I think, certainly for horror, people are, are becoming, to, are being more open to seeing it within other genres. And hopefully from that, we'll then start to kind of go, well, actually, I really enjoyed the the really scary bits of of x so i'll go and try out this actual horror novel over on y and amazon recommends of course is uh, it's a fantastic way of you know, exploring that particular thing oh you really like sarah pimbra's murder and mayhem why not try this particular author over here which is a bit more horror than you're used to yeah definitely and i mean i just even just the when you get like genres and and you put them together so you know things like westworld you know science fiction and western um you know I just I I like that because you've you've got two different groups of tropes that you can smash together and see how they actually interact with one another and I just think that's fun and a bit different. I uh, asked Ed Wilson, who is an agent at Johnson and Alcock Literary Agency, uh, what he would like to see in the new year, and I think this is one for Charlotte. He <laughs> said, "I'd love to see books that don't have girl in the title." psychological thrillers where the female characters aren't all psychos or nymphos and some SF and specifically space opera that addresses challenges and dissects the multicultural world we live in like Ian M. Banks did with the culture books I'd also say more female focused westerns well Lucy is right dear lord have I got a lot to say on this (laughs) I'm um 
for those of you who don't know, I'm also a ghostwriter as well as um, an author in my own right. And uh, one of my clients has asked me to to write a, a story and suggested I, I watch Gone Girl and read A Girl on the Train as, uh, you know, sort of research for it, which I did. And I, I sort of did that on the back of um, watching other things. And apart from the idea of having the word girl in the title, one of the things that these all seem to have is this idea that women have children either as their main or driving influence or use them as a weapon. But basically, there has to be a child in there somewhere or the issue of pregnancy. And I think I kind of see what Ed's going on about, like, you know, we don't have the idea of a girl. We don't want to keep going back to these idea of women being driven by losing a baby or by having a baby or by not having a baby or stealing a baby or getting pregnant. It's like, you know, women have plenty of motivation beyond this. And it was one of the things I struggled with with George R. R. Martin, because if you read the books, Cersei is just a psycho and it's brilliant and she's mad and insane. But if you watch the TV versions, then she has this little bit in season one where she's talking to Ned Stark and she goes on about how she lost a baby and Robert didn't really care. And that was kind of the point that they started to drift apart. And it was good in a way because it really did you know, give a bit more humanity to a character. But on the other hand, I go, can't we just have women who are, are psychos or are just you know, going to kick ass in their own right. And I mean, Lucy Hansen will agree with me here when I say the name Jem Williams and say, you've got the copper cat who has no idea of family or no desire to have children and is still a, a valuable character within her own right. And I think Ed, hopefully he will agree with me here, that the idea of having girl in the title indicates that this is going to be another story about a woman who has motivation to have a child or not have a child, blah, blah, blah. So it would be nice to move away from that in 2017 and get into some more rounded female characters. See, I thought you were going to go in a different place to that. Um, so for okay. my big issue with the girl in the title is that they're always fucking women, all right? They're women. They're not girls. They're adults. <laughs> they're adult women. Call them women. The woman on the train. Yeah. It doesn't, sound, it doesn't have, have the same, same ring, ring to it? it, but at the same time, stop patronising these women by calling them girls. Yeah, it's true. And making true. it okay for, for men to call us girls. I'm not a girl, even if I was carded to buy some gin today. Yeah, no, it's a good point, though. You know, it's, it's, it is but probably a bit demeaning and 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 completely wrong really because as you say none of these central characters are in fact girls i think it's probably just uh you know something that's left over from the oh, cough cough patriarchy did i say that out loud <laughs> <laughs> to look at his other point about like um making sure that we get sf that actually talks about multicultural worlds i think this is so important and is again kind of why i really loved um becky chambers um novel a long way to a small angry planet because she had not only did she have different races but they clearly had very defined and, and nuanced cultural kind of contexts and that was just really nice to see and i really would love to see more sf like that because i'm, I'm so sick of i mean the other thing being um sort of aliens where the aliens are all kind of humanoid in one way yeah. or another. And I mean, obviously, okay, this has kind of come from things like Star Trek, where you know they didn't have budgets, there wasn't CGI, they just had men in suits. Okay, we get it. Like, that's fine. But in a book, you can be a little bit more adventurous than that. You can make up these fantastic creatures that are just completely weird and wonderful. And I want to see more of that. I just want to see, you know, the idea that if we're going to, you know, buy into the idea that there could be aliens out there why not make them weird and different and in all the possible ways well if that's what you would like megan then i can definitely say that you will enjoy the book that i'm currently reading which is called impersonations by walter john williams and is a novel re released by tor.com and it ties in with his um trilogy that he's got out there as well and it stars um i say stars sorry the main character is <laughs> captain sula and she isn't, um, well, so far, she's not much of a psycho. She is, isn't is an infomaniac. And talking about multicultural worlds, there are aliens in it who very, very look very, very different to us and to humans or Terrans, as they call them. And it, it's really refreshing to read and kind of go, here is a, a writer who's gone out of his way to make interesting and unique creatures, but also to integrate them within 
um, an overall kind of culture that you can see where they fit and you see people's responses to them. And it's just fascinating. And you're right. I think it would be great to have a little bit more science fiction that involves that kind of thing. I think it's really nice that Ed also picked up on the um, female-focused westerns because I think, Megan, are you, you're a fan of Stark Colburn's Nunslinger. Am I right? Uh, yes, I am. Very big fan. <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, it was really good to see uh, because I, I've spoken to Stark and um, kind of what, what they said about... Uh, gunslinger is um is that there wasn't enough uh women led westerns and if there you know if a woman did have a major part in a western it was always a stereotype and it would always be and also because it's a you know nunslinger is it's it, don't be fooled by the humorous title yeah there's humor in it but actually nunslinger is a pretty serious book um and it's definitely worth a read it's a beautiful uh rendition of like of the, of the west um and yeah stark said that uh you know they were just sick of seeing the kind of nun particularly the nun stereotype where you know you have this catholic nun and oh you know she's very devout and then of course she travels with the rogue and the rogue melts her nunnish heart and she you know ends up kind of you know getting with him and 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 stark was like you know you know i, I don't like that trope um you know i'm going to do something you know let let's make a character sister thomas josephine who um, who doesn't fall into that that kind of trap, you know, that she she actually has a far stronger kind of sense of of self and integrity. And, you know, she's true to her vows. You know, she might be challenged by them because, you know, that it is the uh, Westerns, they're always frontier stories. And so she is challenged every day by the things that she sees. Um, but it, it's really it's if you want a straight Western, not a weird Western, which is there are quite a lot of weird Westerns around. But if you want a really, really good straight Western uh, that, that has a, a female star, um, then Dunslinger is definitely one to go. And I think, and you know, there should definitely be more um, of, of that type. I think it, it's quite unique in, in where it kind of the place it holds currently in, in the kind of genre. I'd really like to see something like so the, the more female-focused Westerns and then picking up on what Bella was saying and having that sort of, you know, switch it up with a mix of genre and have some science fiction in there. So obviously we've got Westworld and, you know, before that obviously we've had Firefly and Serenity. Um, but I want to see more of that. And then, yeah, so more female-focused Western sci-fi. I'd definitely be into that because I love Westerns. I love sci-fi, as we all know. And I just like gunslinging women. Yes, please. They they go together so well, those two genres. They just complement each other brilliantly. They so do, because, I mean, space, you know, as Star Trek says, space, the final frontier. Frontier! It's all <laughs> frontier fiction. <laughs> it is, it is. All right, so shall I um, move on to Hal Duncan? If you are listening, Hal, we had to edit this down a little bit. Just <laughs> He gave us quite the epic paragraph, but uh, uh, so... <laughs> We're just going to do a little bit of an excerpt of it. Um, so Hal is a writer uh, and a book editor. And like when it comes to science fiction and, well, speculative fiction as a sort of, as a whole, he really knows his shit. Uh, he's actually written an entire book on all the various subgenres of speculative fiction. So if you're wanting to get really nerdy, uh, that's where you should head. So Hal says... What with current events, I think it's time to burn to the ground every shitty, toothless, pandering, middle-of-the-road co-option of the term punk as a suffix for anodyne, commercial, work-to formula. So steampunk, dieselpunk, biopunk, blah, 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 and so on. <laughs> and reclaim the term for fiction, which is actually you know, a, a literary analogue to music. He wants to see women, people of colour, LGBT, etc., you know, um, these characters, etc., and writers pushing the envelope, smashing genre boundaries, smashing the boundary between literary and genre, looking at it all as basically just some crazy kind of pulp modernism where anything goes. So basically, he says, no compromise, no complacency, no complicity, anti-fascist punk fiction. Whew! That was a mouthful, and that was the edited version. So my one thing, uh, actually, this which made me think about this was... Um, so this year I've, I've tried to get into cyberpunk and um, trying to do this, you know, I went and researched, you know, what are like the best cyberpunk novels and so, so on. And, you know, went back to things like Neuromancer um, by William Gibson and I really didn't like it. 
And it's this classic of cyberpunk. And I've been really trying to get into to some of these things. And um, personally, I just find them, I t- from what I've read now, I find some of these, uh, you know, as he's talking about these different variations of the punk subgenres, they tend to, I'm not going to explain it very well, but I feel like it, it, it comes across very stylistically heavy-handed like they're trying really hard to have a particular aesthetic or it, it it's just it's try hard um as we would say when i was a teenager um it, it's like oh, this is gonna be terrible but i feel like it's the avril lavigne of uh science fiction writing <laughs> <laughs> that's that's one day that's going to most make the most amazing quote <laughs> <laughs> which is probably really terrible but it, it just it does feel like they're it, it's almost like these these plugging in of these punk you know the punk suffix as he's talking about and making it into a kind of um you know creating a market and sort of but it's all the the merchandise and the the commercialism that goes around it it doesn't ever to me, the stuff that I've read about it, or read within these genres, they don't feel um, authentic, I think, is is um, how I feel about them. And so, yeah, I want people to, you know, if they really do want to get into this kind of anti-establishment kind of thing, stop going along with the established versions of things like cyberpunk or whatever and actually just get into the core idea of what punk originally was and it's rebelling and blowing the lid off shit and just craziness just drop the tropes and just go nuts and i i have to agree with him i would really like to just see some completely mental shit (laughs) dig out the old sex pistols albums yes yes exactly Go and write some amazing science fiction fantasy to the Sex Pistols. Do it. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I wonder if if it's whether the publishers aren't taking risks and not publishing this kind of stuff because they're not sure that it's going to sell except to a niche audience or whether writers just aren't writing that stuff in the first place either because they don't see a market for it or it's not that kind of thing or they just want to play it safe because they think the publishers are playing safe. So it'd be interesting to, to sort of see where where we think the sort of the bottleneck is whether it is with the publishers who aren't publishing edgy stuff or with the writers who just aren't writing it. it makes me wonder it's very difficult isn't it with major publishers because i suppose they're under certain pressures to push commercial fiction or fiction that has proven itself to be best-selling and and those kind of agendas leave very little room for um experimentation which is sad because it's really the capitalist machine you know kind of biting and biting away um, you know, and as I as my my hobby horse, but I just think you know it's leading to homogenization. We all you just get copycats of of books that are churned out kind of every year, um, and that's a shame that you <laughs> that because actually literature is is the you know, the grassroots medium to challenge the status quo and to push new ideas out into the communities and through through the re- through readerships. You know, and I think. Um, yeah, and, and as you could argue that you know cinema is that uh, cinema's role as well, but there's something about literature that's you know age old, and you know you think of revolutionary pamphlets and things, and what happened to them? What happened to um, that that kind of you, you know mainstream circulation? I just I don't think any of this stuff has has the same. I almost feel like you know we've gone backwards a bit. That maybe in the 80s everybody was a bit more. Um, you know, you see it in children's programs that everybody was just a little bit more kind of edgy and were, it was OK. In, in a way, it was OK to be edgy. And now it seems to have kind of dropped back in, which is peculiar and disappointing that we've, you know, we're kind of retracing old ground. Yeah. And I mean, and um there's been loads of articles over the past few years about how um it's basically the death of the midlist author because, publishers just aren't taking as many risks they aren't backing authors to find their feet you know when there was this golden age time supposedly where publishers would stick with an author for several books um, until they could actually find their audience and then make money but now if you don't make it in your first one or two books they're just like eh, well you know we'll go with someone else so they'll either go with someone who's a big established 
mega seller or try new debuts until they can suddenly get these big sellers. But they're not giving authors the opportunity to grow and find their feet. And it's this weird thing where you then have an entire section of those writers that used to exist that are sort of dying because they they can't get published. Well, it's, that's the particularly sad thing about it, the fact that, you know, debut writers, they do struggle to find a, an audience and a market and a readership. And sometimes it does take time. And they need, they desperately, desperately need publishers to be on their side during those first difficult months or years when you're struggling to make a name for yourself amidst all the white noise of other much larger established brands being published every year. So next up on the list, we have my friend Amanda Rutter, who is an agent with the Red Sofa Literary Agency. And she says as follows. So my wish list would include gender reversal of familiar stories, showing how that might work, such as a retelling of perhaps of Cinderella, where Cinder is a man and falls in love with a prince. I would also be interested in seeing any new styles of urban fantasy, getting away from the PI slash investigation slash strong female central character and exploring new ways of making this work. And I'd also be interested in seeing works that are very particularly influenced by writers of fantasy, such as Robert Holdstock, using myths and folklore in a dangerous manner. So very, very specific things there. And uh, to be honest, she's pretty much hit my to-do list for next year, just simply by coincidence, which is always a good thing. But I mean, what do you guys think? What do we think about gender reversal of familiar stories? Do we think this is going to be a hit in 2017? Uh, Yeah, if Hollywood trends are anything to go by, definitely. And also what she's saying about urban fantasy. Like, I I admit that I do enjoy some Jim Butcher. Uh, <laughs> the Dresden Files, they're fun. They're not going to win any writing prizes, although they probably have. But, uh, no, I mean, you know, it's it's not really quality prose. It's fun. Um, and I do, you know, it's, it's my chill-out read. Um, but I do keep seeing these kind of um, fantasy books that just kind of have the same thing where they're doing the the semi-noir PI thing and you know what I I really would like to see someone do something else and you know and again I um I enjoyed Peter McLean's uh Drake um which again is the same sort of thing it's uh supernatural with the PI um and yeah, those are trends that I'm seeing again and again and again. And while I do enjoy them, because I love noir, I like supernatural things, like, you know, that those are all tropes that I like, so I enjoy that style. But, you know, there maybe is, um, you know, saturation in the market there, and it would be nice to see some urban fantasy going into something a little bit different. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I mean, I I haven't read a lot of urban fantasy. Um, the the stuff that I have read tends to be more kind of fae orientated, as in like Liz Yeager's series, um, which I really enjoyed. Um, so it's it's that's quite different. Um, but yeah, I think there's probably a whole kind of seabed of of exciting urban kind of fantasy stories that we've not even reached we've not even touched bottom on yet i think we're only it's a a very young kind of subgenre um you know it you know talking with comparison to epic fantasy um (laughs) for example and yeah i think there's plenty plenty more um to you know to uh, to expand and to discuss um in in urban fantasy yeah definitely i mean i think it ties into what we'll we'll be talking about what Gillian Redfern says next but I think it ties very closely into um into the whole kind of technology uh, and modern life well I wanted to pick up on Amanda's comment that she wanted to see um retellings of Cinderella where Cinderella is a man and falls in love with a prince and I mean I'm a big big um fan of fairy tales I do a lot of reading on it not just normal fairy tales and, and fiction but sort of academic essays and things like that and I I do a lot of reading of young adult stuff when it comes to fairy tales and I have literally got I think three books on my list to read of young adult Cinderella retellings and they're all pretty much the same and I think there's there's always going to be a lot of of mileage to be got out of Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and Snow White and always always Red Riding Hood because of the sort of the um, coming of age story that it is. I think there's there's a lot of mileage still to be got out of fairy tales, but I think a lot of people are plugging at the same idea. And it would indeed be very interesting to see a few more retellings of original stories, but with a, a more interesting twist on them that is currently offered up by the uh, the market. 
I'd also like to see more um, sort of retellings of the more obscure fairy tales because you know as you say they they're always going back to Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and you know it's the same ones that they're going back to over and over again but there's hundreds of these fairy tales you know I've got loads of collections I've got the the Brothers Grimm and Hans Christian Andersen I've got all these collections of fairy tales there are so many and yes some of them are completely bizarre um but why not try and put them into some kind of modern context I you know I'd like to see some of those weird and wonderful ones brought to life well, it's interesting you should say that because my uh, YA novel that's out on Amazon at the moment is uh, based on two obscure unknown fairy tales, well not unknown, but fairy tales that don't generally pop into the, the imagination. I think the thing about more unknown ones is that they're very, very short. I mean, the original Frog Prince by the Brothers Grimm when they collected it was literally two sentences long and they kind of went, well, we can't have this. And they expanded it quite a lot. So I think... A lot of people quite like the structure and the way that Cinderella and all the others play out. And one of the things I found when I was looking into different fairy tales to sort of weave into my book is that they're very, very short and yes. incredibly vague. So it, you could take a fairy tale and reinvent it, but no, nobody might know what the original was because they're just so short and they just don't make it into the general population. So again, yeah, I totally agree with you that um, another, I think, more stories about fairy tales and folk tales that aren't known would be very good but i also still think there's a lot of mileage left in more traditional ones if people can just look at it in a different way yeah definitely and also um come to think of it uh going back to some of the the darkness of fairy tales i know that's something that you like as well charlotte that you know i think we've missed that you know with the kind of disneyfying <laughs> of um all our fairy tales we you know, these are dark moral tales and I'd like to see that come back in, into fashion where you can kind of bring those stories, um, say something new about them, but also keep that darkness and the kind of scariness of them because they are scary. And yeah, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd definitely like to see that in if there are more retellings. It's quite a shame that Disney have just chosen to remake the traditional disneyfied beauty and the beast version now i love beauty and the beast it was my favorite disney growing up but it has to be said you know it's pretty much been milled to death <laughs> and since we were just talking about um you know the original dark meanings of fairy tales it would have been great to have done a you know a proper almost you know in the style of the brothers groom adaptation of beauty and the beast the trouble with beauty the and the beast is that it's when it was originally told, it was designed to be a tale to reassure women or young girls who'd been signed up to an arranged marriage. And it was supposed to be, oh, he might seem like a beast now, but he just needs love and care. And and then he will turn into this wonderful prince. I mean, that was the whole point of stories. They were told in the nursery. They were told by nurses to young girls. They were told by mothers to daughters and so on. It was it's very much sort of female led. Um, and I, I think it's difficult to update something like that and mm, to really that's a very good to, point yeah very good yeah point. to really get to the dark I mean something like um, Red Riding Hood and, and sexual you know awakening is something that applies you know kind of any culture any um, any genre it's all something that you know speaks to us um, and also I suppose marriage and trying to grab your you know raise yourself out of poverty in Cinderella is again something that will apply to whatever culture you're in but something like Beauty and the Beast, which is effectively about arranged marriages and being nice to guys so that, you know, they'll turn from the beast into the prince, I think is perhaps losing its tone and its flavour um, an awful lot in this current day and age where we don't so much have that within our culture. I don't know, though, because for me, I always read it as like a, a Stockholm Syndrome kind of story. Where, <laughs> Whoa, that is dark. <laughs> yeah, where she falls in love with her kidnapper, basically, and I... So I, I feel like that's quite dark. But I also, um, I'd kind of like to see a really fun Bollywood version of Beauty and the Beast because they that do would still be awesome. have, uh, you know, arranged marriages. So it could, it could work. I think that'd be good. Since we're talking about gender swapping, why not have a female beast? That would be really cool. <laughs> that would be very good. Then it wouldn't be all about, you know, that it would. Be, I suppose it would be more about roles than it would be necessarily about the woman. You could always go back to, uh, I hate to say this, you could always go back to Gone Girl, where she's pretty much um, the beast incarnate and uh, and is pretty unpleasant. Although, of course, 
although I don't want to spoil Gone Girl for anybody who hasn't watched it, but there's no reformation at the end. She doesn't turn into the lovely person from that. So, uh, so yeah, interesting idea. Maybe there is some, you see, there is some mileage in all of these traditional fairy tales after all. Yep. Uh, so should we move on to Gillian Redfern from Galansk? Yeah. Gillian says, in terms of boundary pushing or challenging readers, I'd love to see more projects about the near future and how technology is increasingly integrated with society and life and about the ways in which it's changing both people and the world. I'd also be fascinated to see something which challenges stereotypes in any genre of fiction. So I mentioned that earlier when we were talking about urban fantasy, because that might be an interesting route for urban fantasy to go down, to have this, the focus on. Well, I suppose you'd, it's, a, it's a bit of sci-fi, really. You bring in the kind of idea of, um, I, I've got bionics in my head. I'm not sure why, but it would be kind of cool to integrate those two, you know, urban fantasy with, you know, I, it's it's kind of like, do you know what this reminds me of, actually, is um, have either of you read All the Birds in the Sky? Yes. No. You, Charlie Jane Anders, really great book, which is a I, perfect yeah. example of the, the dialogue between fantasy and science fiction. That's the entire book, yeah, and it's brilliant. So in the, in the book, she actually has a computer. Um, well, it's, it's actually, it starts out as a kind of home-baked homemade computer kind of project that is where he basically made that one of the characters tries to make a kind of ai system um that in the end becomes um it it does gain independence and sentience and ends up turning itself into a very popular handheld device like a smartphone and um that's I thought that was so clever, that idea of, and actually it is the perfect book to read. It's almost, it, you know, actually this book is almost an example of um, what we were saying about, you know, urban fantasy going in different directions, because it, it kind of is a really clever blend of, you know, fantasy elements and science fiction elements. And it kind of takes it from from both sides. And it's it's contemporary and yet very clever in the way that, you know, fantasy has a tendency to comment on man's relationship with nature. Um, that's another a major theme that this book picks up on. But I just loved the way that this AI had just become it had made itself integral to people's lives in in a way that you can just imagine you looking down at your smartphone in your hand you think christ i'm completely reliant on this device to give me all of these pieces of information that i'm kind of hooked on um in, in my daily life i just so clever absolutely and then that book is definitely one of my favorites uh, of the past few years i thought it was brilliant more of that please <laughs> Definitely more The Birds in the Sky. I will read anything else she writes. I'm going to move on to um, Sandra, whose last name I'm probably going to butcher. Apologies, Sandra. I should have checked with you how you pronounce it. Uh, so Sandra Sawaka. She's an agent from Marjack Scripts, and uh, she says that she's looking for a bit of escapism next year. And yeah, I think we can all relate to that. Um, we're living in such a tumultuous, often depressing time. I think people will reach for lighter books more and more. This is not to say they shouldn't convey a message, but a well-written, fun adventure or a clever gothic mystery is definitely on top of my list. And I absolutely think that something really fun and like adventure stories, I I think I'm quite a child at heart. And uh, yeah, a fun adventure that's, you know, either fantasy, sci-fi, horror, I don't know anything, but just just a good lark is what I'd like. Yeah, we've come become a bit grim lately with the the grim dark kind of uh, era of. I mean, you have to say that twenty sixteen is has been pretty grim dark, you know, in general. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I've, I'm always up for um, lighter reads and and you know to, th- books that remind you why you picked up books in the first place you know the ones that took you away on a a grand adventure I mean there's we won't get into the long-running argument about the fact that fantasy you know isn't always escapism but some of the fantasy you have to argue is and and it's the best some of it is is my favorite it's the kind of the best kind and it's it's, it has a magic all of its own really yeah definitely I mean I I, um I finally (laughs) um caught up and I'm reading um the Split Worlds series from Emma Newman uh, after your wonderful interview with her, I found myself just like reading the first one and it was just such fun. That was my kind of this is total escapism. And I read the first book in like three days and now I'm halfway through the third 
and I started it like a week and a half ago. Um, so I think, yeah, more like that where it's just just a good lark and, and something that just keeps you reading just because yeah, you're having fun with the characters and you're getting to know them. And, you know, there's certainly some um, commentary on women's rights and things like that within the book. But for the most part, it's just it's just fun. We do, it's true, true. I know that we're going to argue. Well, I don't. I don't want to argue, but um, I I really <laughs> like the Invisible Library series for that reason because it's not there's it's not really pushing an agenda. I can't really see that it's commenting on anything in particular. I just rather like the the mishmash of ideas that Genevieve Cogman kind of um, plays around with, and they're very short. They're easy to read and it's got a dragon in it. And, you know, I'm just really easily seduced by dragon books, clearly. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I just and I think it's people like it because it's kind of Victoriana as well. And there's a certain charm to world hopping kind of it. a lot of it isn't, you know, it's funny because it's you, you say it isn't. I was going to say it isn't explained, but actually it kind of is explained to the as much as you want it to be and so I know Megan's not a fan of these no, books. No I liked the I, first one <laughs> I found I, I had issues with the second one. But it does pick up on that fun element. Yeah no I, I'd agree with that. Fun escapism you know where there's nothing that's kind of beating you brow beating you. Um, I'm not saying that's a bad thing I'm just no, saying I mean, that again. Yeah because every we all read um, reach for different things at different times and I, I definitely Absolutely. think that there's, there's a place for like good fun reads as just as there's a place for you know literary reads you know, I like the full gamut <laughs> and uh, as you mentioned before um, Liz Diego's books I think they're great you know they're fun books as well you know oh definitely fun yeah definitely a place for that I think the escapism that horror offers is very different. It's kind of the opposite. It's not light and fluffy. It's kind of escapism in looking how terrible the world is and being kind of glad that it's not happening to you, that this serial killer isn't stalking you, isn't stalking your family, that kind of thing. And I mean, horror and fairy tales have always been a way to kind of exercise your own demons and deal with things in a a positive way so I think I wonder whether horror will be popular or unpopular this year unpopular because perhaps it is very dark and uh, as Sandra says a lot of people will be reaching for lighter stuff or whether it will be things are so terrible that people will want to escape to somewhere darker just to remind them that actually life isn't necessarily as bad as it could be it's a good question which brings us to Alison Littlewood which does indeed bring us to the very lovely Alison Littlewood who is a writer of horror and mystery and published by Joe Fletcher Books when I asked her what she was looking forward to and what was on her wish list, she said as follows. As a writer, I've been seduced by the Victorian period. And as a reader, I'd love to see more weird historical novels, work that reaches into the curious corners of the past and blends the atmosphere of lost times with genre fiction, fiction while hopefully saying something relevant about all our lives. I mean, this is obviously something we've seen throughout all of our recommendations. It's the idea of having the old classics, but with something new. And I think it obviously shows that everybody is kind of going along the, the same lines of we want good, solid stuff, but with a new twist. Uh, and obviously, Alison's uh, preference for weird historical novels goes back to my idea previously of Dan Simmons and Sarah Pimbra and how there's this blending of fiction, particularly horror at the moment. You get a lot of horror inserted into other genres and it becomes more and more acceptable. I, I wonder whether the horror brand itself is being diluted because people don't write horror these days. They just kind of write supernatural historical fiction or frightening dystopian novels with uh, with a lot of gore in them. It's uh, it's an interesting point. Well, I don't know because, I mean, I've long been a fan of um, science fiction horror. So things like Alien and Terminator and, you know, these kinds of things where it's that real terrifying piece about something in the future whether it's you know skynet taking over the world or it's massive crazy aliens that you cannot escape from um and i i'd love to see more of that especially because while i've seen it done really well in film i'm yet to feel really scared by a science fiction horror novel so i challenge you horror writers out there to uh, write me a wonderfully terrifying science fiction horror. That's that's my challenge for next year. <laughs> challenge for 2017 as laid down by Megan. Yes. 
So we also talked to a um, book reviewer and blogger, uh, La Chouette uh, Virginie, and she said that one of her favourite reads this year was a book called The Foolish King, uh, which gave homage to the game of chess with a fantasy retelling introducing children to the game. Um, what she said was fascinating to her was not only the tale was chosen to relay the story, but it had its companion-like elements. And what she means is... Um, She's talking about um, using, um, say, an app or some other interactive device um, to aid in the telling of a story in a traditional book. So it's like having um, it's something that my sister was talking about um, fairly recently where she was envisioning, um, you know, a book. She's actually written a whole kind of um, lots of short stories where you can actually you read a short story and at the end you make a decision about where to go next so it gives power directly to the reader and and she was kind of it I don't know if it's actually this is actually happening but she was envisioning developing some kind of simple app that would um, end up kind of shaping your reading experience and so no two readers would ever end up with the same story um, and that's obviously really interesting, considering that it's coming from the same story, but your experiences are vastly different. Um, and and uh, La Chouette says, um, you know, is is there interest in this? Is there any pressure to, you know, on from publishers or on publishers to um, diversify, you know, it not just uh, as we've been talking about, you know, literary elements, but actually physically diversify. So, you know, look, reaching out into completely different mediums and trying to bring those into the literary world. I'm a multimedia producer in my day job um, for academic books, but sort of my my role is creating interactivities for books. Um, and I remember when we, we sort of really early on when people were first starting to get, you know, books on iPads and all this. And I remember this uh, version of Alice in Wonderland, which had sort of um, animated pieces within the book that were kind of like little activities or, you know, fun little things. So it had... You know, when she was falling down, down the well or wherever she's going, you know, it, it, it would show, you could um, like shake the iPad and, you know, things would fall around her and that kind of thing. Um, so there have been, you know, attempts to sort of look into this. And I believe it was, oh, I think it was James Frame who, who did a similar thing with some of his books where it was like, um, it had kind of a, a meta puzzle thing going on where people could sort of play a game that was attached to the book and there was like the book that was the story but then you had to go out in the real world and find clues and things so there's certainly this this has been dabbled in but I think the problem people are having with it is um how to monetize that effectively and mm -hmm. Um, always comes back to money. Yeah, it, it really does. Because the thing is, I mean, I can tell you as someone who has to work with trying to create apps and web apps and just interactive elements, I mean, they are really costly. And and this thing with the digital um, products, people seem to think that it shouldn't cost as much because it's not physical and it shouldn't be this and that. But software development is really expensive and a lot of work goes into it and people don't think about that. And so to create something like a really interactive book, they really need to make sure that the market's there because the cost to create that is really, really high. Well, you know, I guess it's going back to what Virginie was saying about, um, you know, I don't know the, the Foolish King, this book, but I, I've just been thinking about, you know, if it was a book about, um, or is a book about teaching, well, it's about chess, but it also has the ability to actually teach you how to play chess. That's kind of cool. And and, and the idea of, of having that extra kind of matrix of, of um you know education it's like it kind of entertains you but also you know teaches you on a, on another level and that's it and it, not not just on the level of um you know you learn something through reading but actually it's you're learning something in a practical sense while reading and I think yeah that is that's quite special and I think it probably only works for you know certain books um I think you you know you probably touched on the the 
quintessential point which is that it's probably very very expensive to, to actually make it work successfully um but i wouldn't be surprised if we saw a few more um you know inroads into trying to I don't know experiment a bit with forms of fiction um and try and kind of it's all about how to convey the story to the reader um you know and actually it's probably time that we did you know a bit more experimentation in that field yeah and I think there's definitely a lot of room for that um you know in terms of like education but so using kind of fiction for younger children and combining that with a learning element um, in an interactive digital environment. And then on, on the other hand, there may be way in in terms of, you know, tie-in books where you get, because, you know, you already have tie-ins written for Star Wars and Warcraft and Assassin's Creed, and there are, there are novels that go along with these video games and, and films and so on. Um, so, you know, you could imagine getting, like, Pokemon Go... <laughs> <laughs> having a novel to go along with it and then having the two interact with each other. I, I feel like that might be sort of the way that it would get explored because then the money, um, you know, needed for that digital piece is kind of already being spent. It's already there. It's already created. And so then the book could then be worked to tie into that digital piece that's already there. And I think that's probably how it makes logical sense that that would be where we would see some more adventures, um, adventurous risk-taking happen from um, producers of content. Mm -hmm. I think I I came across a children's book um, this year, actually. I cannot remember for the life of me now which one it was, but I think it did just that. I think it it was a kind of sleuth book. It was, you know, science fiction-y kind of, but but set in a contemporary, um, you know, in just modern day society and it was why it's a kid's book but you know and it obviously assumed that kids would have um you know an app or you know a smartphone while they were reading it and it actually referenced some stuff that you could point your smartphone at one of the pages and it would activate something so it was directly linked to you know obviously the app had been developed to be used directly with a book and that was really interesting so maybe i mean and we haven't seen that so much i don't think in the adult um arena but it looks like it, it you know that's it's already being experimented with um you know kids fiction well i wonder if megan is right and we would get more risk taking personally i think we'd try and kind of get the what you could do on a digital level and with an app restricting what you can do within a story and I could just imagine somebody writing a brilliant story taking it to an editor and going yes that's fantastic but I'm not sure I can get the app to do that could you rewrite it to be a bit more like this or we've you know we've done research and discovered that our the core people using our app is is this particular age range so can you change it all a bit so I think it is right that it could open up some fantastic opportunities but it might also end up being like all those those stories we used to have in the 80s where you had the toy and then the stories were crafted around the toys so that the toy would fit in and people would buy the toy and, and play with that. I wonder if this has the potential to be the same thing, that it starts off as an accompaniment to a book and ends up being the reason for the book in the first place. I wonder if that might be a risk. Very possible. I think we just um, haven't seen enough um, you know, about it yet, really, to kind of see which you know, direction it's going to go in, if any. It'd be interesting to do this again this time next year and see just how far along that particular uh, that particular idea has got uh yeah, it would be interesting to redo it and see whether we do have any older fairy tales with 80s teen tropes or whether we have any <laughs> retellings of cinderella where cinderella is a guy watch this space <laughs> this time next year thank you everyone for listening to uh, the last episode of our very first season of breaking the glass slipper and we hope to see you back again in the new year